Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to The Politics Box, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at North Kentucky University. This is the final episode in our election 2020 series, which started in late August of this year. And I think over the past, well, few months, we've had some great discussions on a variety of issues. And I once again want to take a, this opportunity to thank everyone at NKU who made this special project possible, especially my department chair, Karen Miller, Arts and Sciences Dean, Diana McGill, Provost Suat Rollins, and NKU President Ashish Vaidya. I also want to say how proud I am of uh, Olivia, Doc, Faith, Alan, Noah, and Skylar. This has really been their show, and I know how hard they've worked preparing for every episode. And I think this series has been particularly worthwhile because it's given listeners a perspective that, you know, I as a middle-aged guy, along with my other mostly middle-aged politics guys co-hosts, can't really all that easily provide. And that's, of course, on both ends of the sort of generational spectrum. So today we'll be wrapping things up by starting by looking toward the future with, uh, to begin with, what we see as the biggest challenges facing first the Democratic Party, how we think the Democrats should address these challenges, and finally, how we think the Democrats actually will address them if, you know, they address them at all. So who wants to get us started today? Alan. Well, I know it's probably everybody's saying this now, but it does seem to kind of be coming to a head, this divide that's sort of come about between the progressive Democrats and the moderate Democrats. I mean, I think of the incident between Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Manchin, where um, I don't remember who started it, but like Joe Manchin said something about the police and Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, she tweeted that a uh, picture of her like glaring at Joe Manchin and they're kind of going at it. And it's even coming around with some of the Biden cabinet. It's starting to come around with some of the Biden cabinet picks. I know they picked um, uh, a Clinton stalwart for one of the positions and there's getting, and there's like some pushback from the Bernie wing. So I think um, if they want to, like, for the midterms, they have to figure out what exactly, like, what image they're trying to present to the public, like, what most effectively gets votes for them. Olivia. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, Alan kind of made me think of, like, AOC has, yes, she was criticizing some of his um, potential nominations um, for his administration, but also, like, even when he was, um, like, the the when it had been narrowed down to him being like the democratic candidate against Donald Trump. Um, and I love AOC, don't get me wrong, but she was uh, oftentimes very critical of Biden, um, which was kind of like, 
I don't know, like, like Alan said, this divide between the more progressive Democrats and the more moderate. And it's almost like it's almost hurting um, the Democrats chances of winning, because when you have people who are really loyal to the more progressive side and people who um, are big fans of AOC and Bernie Sanders and those people are bashing the Democratic candidate, um, it kind of disincentivizes the more progressive voters from wanting to go out and vote for that candidate. So um, I think just with there being this big split between ideology um, on the Democratic side, it, it's um, going to hurt the amount of voter turnout that a more moderate Democrat can get in the future. Doc? I, uh, I really agree with uh, what everybody else has said. I mean, I, the, when I first read this, uh, when you put it out, I thought, well, you know, there's been such animosity between the Republicans and the Democrats uh, with the impeachment and going on and so forth. But it's almost like the Democrats have at least two groups that have at least that level of animosity between one another. So for a guy like me, I'm sitting on the sidelines throwing the confetti going, oh, good, let you and him fight. Uh, and I'll just sit here and uh, sort of enjoy it. Right. Yeah, I, I could see where a lot of Republicans certainly would, would revel in that in that type of thing. Olivia. I think I just wanted to add, I think what's really hard for a candidate like Biden um, or for any Democratic candidate going forward is um, everybody's already criticizing Biden, saying that he's going to have to um, say to the public that, well, actually, he doesn't really know what to say to the public when he was campaigning. Um, if he were to say that he was going to be more moderate on policies to try and gain some like moderate Republicans who aren't Trump supporters, but um, who aren't Democrats either, um, then he's going to. Uh, at least people were saying that that was going to lose him the more further left progressive uh, Democratic base or at least the progressive base. Um, but then if he swings way further to the left, um, he and then the more moderate people and especially like the non-Trump supporting Republicans are going to freak out and say that he's a socialist and they're not going to vote for him. Um, and I think, you know, even though Biden has won, um, he's still dealing with that because people are being critical like AOC and like the, the Bernie Sanders supporters of him um, not being progressive enough. Um, but then if he really tries to do pass any kind of progressive policy, he's going to get a lot of backlash from the more moderates. And um, I think we're going to see that as a trend going forward. If you want to get the younger voters, especially, um, you're going to have to swing way further left, but then you risk being called a socialist, um, which um, the more moderates seem to be really, really opposed to and um, will probably lose votes from them. One name that's come up uh, a few times so far is, well, or, or initials, I guess, because she's better known by her initials at this point, AOC. And, and of course, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez is hasn't even been in Congress yet for two full years, and yet she seems to be the face of at least one wing of the Democratic Party, at least in, in Congress. And in a previous age, there was, uh, maybe it's too strong to call it a norm of apprenticeship, but at least a sense that uh, in your first few years in Congress, at least you sort of kept your head down and didn't say a whole lot and sort of learned the ropes and gradually rose through the ranks. And so do you think that what we are seeing with ALC and the squad and other, you know, uh, at least relatively new members, 
taking so much of a spotlight, is that a potentially good thing, a breath of fresh air? Or would it be better if there were that more of a norm of people sort of learning the institution and and getting some experience before they they jumped in and tried to become the, the face of the party? What do you think? Faith? I think especially with um, these groups being so different and so young that they're really going to want to try to get get in there and say, I'm doing things to represent the people that elected me. So I think that that kind of phase of kind of learning the ropes and just sitting around and like biding your time is really going to phase out, especially because there are so many pressing issues that um, <clears throat> these, again, these young people in office are trying to present. So I think that time's kind of, kind of. Skylar. I definitely agree with Faith on that one um, because I feel that as my generation ages and gets to a point where they have the ability to hold a political position. Um, a lot of us are not necessarily going to be able to get that amount of experience because we also have the older generation who is currently in uh, holding our congressional seats are going to age out. And as awful as that sounds that they're going to eventually pass away. Um, who's going to replace those spots our generation is and i feel like putting i feel like gatekeeping the ability to learn the ropes either before or during you also have to take into account that the house terms are only two years like that's not necessarily a whole lot of time to learn everything but also not a lot of time to like i guess guarantee or want to put all of that effort into it because there's not necessarily all that payoff. So let's turn to the what you think actually will happen. I mean, there's certainly one scenario under which this this tension between the progressives and the moderates in the de in the Democratic Party uh, just is not resolved. The party tears itself uh, apart, and and Doc does the happy dance in his living room. I, I would I would guess. Uh, do you see the Do you see the Democrats at least in the near term future sort of fruitfully or usefully addressing this problem? Uh, and if not, why not? Noah. Um, I think they're going to have to start addressing this issue because if they don't, this is potentially going to cause a divide within the party. And then that's going to potentially even cause for more Republicans to potentially get in office. I don't think that's what they want. So I think eventually what we're going to see is by any chance that we're going to have like a mixture of both progressive pol uh, policies being passed, but also some of the moderate ones as well being passed. So I feel like so I feel like with Joe Biden's presidency, I feel like that's what the potential there is that potential force getting those progressive policies like like how people how during the campaign trump kept calling his environmental plan the green new deal but it's not the green new deals there's obviously some differences so it's like i think we're going to have those steps in the right direction to having some of those moderate things being passed but also some progressives um, progressive movements as well being passed as well doc uh just given the the state of uh a lot of these cities, when you say, I mean, they're still burning down Portland and uh, they're working on burning down uh, a lot of other cities and they can't seem to put a stop to that no matter who's in office. And I mean, I don't know if these people are so far to the left or they're just uh, violent interlopers that. Uh, you know, or taking advantage of a situation, but 
I mean, when you when you get that that violent and destructive uh, wing of the left wing, it, it it seems like the moderates don't stand a chance. Olivia, um, well, not for the reasons that Doc just said, but I do think that um, because younger generations um, historically have been more and more progressive um, and left leaning or left leaning, and because we've seen um, a dramatic shift um, in polarization of the Republican Party, we've seen um, in the last several decades, the Republican Party has kind of become more and more radicalized into the right, um, ultimately leading to such a divisive and um, unusual candidate um, in Donald Trump and then actually him winning the presidency. Um, I think the same is is going to happen. Well, not not I'm not saying that the Democratic Party is going to be like extremist and radical and constantly nominating like super um, controversial candidates. But um, I do think that we're going to see like a more progressive shift um, in the Democratic Party, especially as like my generation and even younger generations who were um, a lot of like Bernie Sanders as um, supporters and base. Um, I think that as you know, my generation is is getting older, and we have even younger generations coming to age of being able to vote. Um, what's going to be in the best interest of the Democratic Party, um, and what our vote, what the younger voters are going to want to see, um, is is a more uh, is a more left leaning shift um, to more progressive policies um, in the Democratic Party as a whole. Okay, let's turn things around now 180 degrees and talk about the Republicans what what you see the main challenges in the Republican Party are and again how you think they should react and what you think the, the Republican Party will actually end up doing or you know not being not doing as the case may be faith I think the big thing especially that this election showed is usually the young vote doesn't matter but in this election the young vote mattered a lot um, and it, I forget what exactly the poll uh, the outcome was, I think it was like near 17% of younger voters between the ages of 18 to 29 actually showed up for Biden. And it wasn't because they were really enthusiastic about Biden. It was because they really didn't like Donald Trump. So I think if the younger generation kind of comes to show, um, comes to vote more and kind of become more politically engaged, but that's something the Republican Party is really going to have to consider is how can we get these young people to come to our side? Noah. Um, one issue I potentially see is not having Trump's name on the ballot anymore. Uh, as we all know, Trump is a very enthusiastic candidate. I mean, he brought he brings people to the polls. And I mean, like, I I've, I read something recently that says, like, a lot of people are worried about these Georgia runoff elections because Trump's name is not on the ballot. And the two Republican candidates are not as enthusiastic as Trump is. And so a lot of people are worried that these seats could potentially flip. And so I think the Republican Party needs to find another way to make people enthusiastic to go out and vote for them, because if if it was Trump that was causing them to go out to vote, that was great. But it's are these people then going to start showing out again for midterm elections if his name's not on the ballot every time? Olivia. So um, kind of like what everybody else was saying, but the Republican Party has found so much success within a small margin, I want to say like Trump's base is like, I don't know, 35%, 40%, something around there. Um, 35%, I think of the country like supports Trump. Um, but those who do support him, like 
are loyal to the death for him. Um, and they found so much success, at least um, in rallying Trump's supporters and in rallying a specific like demographic of people. Um, but also at the same time, they've had to deal with the consequences of Trump being extremely unpopular to like the rest of the country. Um, he was not very popular among moderate Republicans and obviously not popular at all among moderate de- Democrats or more left-leaning people. Um, there was like a major animosity against Trump. So um, I think the Republican Party is going to kind of struggle with, do we want to put forward an extremely polarizing candidate um, to kind of rally that like Trump base that they were able to take hold of um, under the Trump administration? Or do they want to kind of stray away from that and try and like get more moderate votes, but also risk losing that kind of like loyalty and that excitement around the candidate that Trump had with his base? Doc? Uh, when you say about uh, enthusiasm about this, uh, these runoffs in Georgia, um, if you count enthusiasm by the number of emails uh, that I get uh, on a daily basis uh, supporting the uh, Republicans uh, and asking for money to support the Republicans, uh, if you just counted that, uh, it doesn't make any difference if Trump's name's on the ballot. I mean, they uh the republicans are saying we need these two people and if we have these two people we can stonewall for two years and by that time people are going to realize what a lousy job and i'm sorry but biden and that crew are going to do a lousy job i promise you and when they people see that they will just uh, the, the, the midterm election is going to be unbelievable uh, for uh, Congress and, and the Senate. I got, well, I, I have to say, Doc, uh, I, I also am getting a lot of emails. You would, one would think that from my inbox that John Ossoff is my best friend for my entire life, and we have a, a very close relationship lately. But so I, I understand your pain just in a different direction. So it sounds like a lot of folks are saying that uh, they're seeing this, obviously, Trumpist, more centrist divide. So sort of a mirror image of what's going on with the Democrats. And so let's turn to the what you think the party will do. Do you see the Republican Party in the next few years actually of going more down the road of what you might call sort of right-wing populism a la Donald Trump or returning more to sort of a a, a moderate type of uh, Paul Ryan-ish kind of uh, Main Street establishment Republicanism. What do you think? Alan? I think we're going to see more right-wing populism. It's more popular with the people. It garners more attention. It's apparently very enticing to the Republican base right now. Populism is far more... Um, popular than um policy wonks that's just a fact doc uh i agree i i think the uh populist uh side of i don't even think there's much of a republican party anymore uh as there is a populist party uh that wants to see things uh get done instead of just get talked about uh, the way they normally are. And Trump, I mean, I, I just, 
you know, I would go to work for the man in a heartbeat because he does stuff. And that's that's what I like to do. I like to get things done. If we say we're going to build a wall, we're going to build a wall. I mean, uh, and we're just not going to talk about building a wall. So I, I just believe it will be more of a, they ought to just change the name to the Populist Party. On that note, do do you think that now some people would say the Republican Party is is these days is less populist and more of what and this is a, in a derogatory sense they would say a cult of personality around Donald Trump and that raises the question as to whether or not populism is possible on a larger scale if in other words if more people can sort of do what Donald Trump is doing or if Donald Trump has a unique set of skills that allow him to appeal to the public in the way that, say, a lot of other Republicans who maybe try to be, be like Donald Trump wouldn't come off as authentic or wouldn't connect with people. Well, what do you think about that? Alan? So um, I do a lot of research on populism. They need a figure like Trump. Populism is all about one visual individual or a few individuals who are extremely charismatic and a lot of people come up and they follow them. And once that person leaves, the movement kind of disintegrates. I can think of um, examples in history and state politics and national politics, even um, in state politics, for example, in Kentucky, I know this is super specific and a lot of people probably won't know what I'm talking about on the podcast, but um, in Kentucky, there was happy Chandler who was governor for uh, two non-consecutive terms. His wing, his faction of the Democratic Party, they basically collapsed when he wasn't running for election because the other candidates they put up weren't charismatic as him. Populism is all about image. It's all about charisma. Um, And without that, which a lot of these people aren't, the movement sort of just collapses. So I think they need figures like Trump if they're going to keep this up. And on the national level, some people, uh, old folks like myself, would point to the Reform Party and Ross Perot in the early 90s, very popular guy. But then after that, the Reform Party couldn't really build on that, though, of course, that was not an established national party, just sort of a thing that Ross Perot sort of came up with, I guess you could say, in a sense. Let's next talk about election systems. Uh, They've been under pretty significant attack of late with, of course, President Trump leading the way and claiming really without any evidence that we've seen, at least publicly, that there was massive fraud throughout the system in 2020. And I mention election systems as in plural, because, of course, in the United States, the Constitution calls for each state to be in charge of its own election system, as opposed to sort of a unitary federal system that we might see in a lot of other countries. So thinking about that, have the 2020 elections exposed what you believe to be significant problems with how at least some states conduct elections? And if that's the case, what do you think we can plausibly do to restore public faith in the integrity of the process? Or is that ship already sailed no matter what states do? Skyler. I feel that the Republican Party is going to have a lot of difficulty switching over from this way of thinking because the Republican Party right now are rallying behind Donald Trump. What's going to happen once there's nobody, aka Donald Trump's not there for them to rally behind? I feel like the Republican Party has created like this sense of like, I hate to say cultish kind of capabilities because of how 
faithful they are to believing in him. Like they're wholeheartedly believing in him and not like thinking about it. And I feel like that's going to be really hard for the Republican Party to get that kind of like popularity with the party back because Donald Trump has been very popular amongst the Republican Party. Everybody is seen with his flag flying in front of their house still uh, on the back of their trucks, bumper stickers. Um, you haven't really seen this for other candidates. At least I, I really haven't seen a kind of response like this to a presidential candidate or anybody in office, even if it wouldn't be president. I haven't seen anybody this religiously following an individual in office. And I feel like people need to start becoming more skeptical and start asking more questions. And the Republican Party doesn't necessarily like to do that. So I feel like they're going to have a lot of difficulties in the future with getting things back in order in order to create this efficacy for voting because Donald Trump has painted it as, as I guess, consistently run about with fraud and he keeps telling his supporters this and his supporters are going to continue to support the Republican Party in the future. And those supporters aren't going to have faith in the election system. So I feel like Donald Trump has already done so much damage that I don't think that there's any turning point to truly bring back that efficacy because we're moving in the future and we can't take steps backwards by solely taking in-person voting. Like, on election day, we're moving past the need for that um, as a society. So I feel like it's just going to be a really hard for the Republican Party. Doc? I will have faith in the election system as soon as you show up to vote with a ID in your hand. Uh, and I think this year with this uh pandemic, that voting ahead of time is not a bad thing. Uh, you don't have to do it on one day. You have to stop it on a day. But again, I won't have faith in it until it's a picture ID in person. Olivia. So I think um, like what Skylar was saying and then what Doc pretty much just <laughs> solidified is that there is definitely, um, again, a, a lot of it is that um, Trump supporting base, but there's definitely um, a, a percentage of people who are never going to have faith in a um, mail-in ballot or a, a mail-in voting system um, and that being an option. But um, I still think that even if there's, you know, a, a 30% or 40%, whatever it is, um, a proportion of the United States that doesn't approve of that or that um, sees that Trump actually won and that the the election was stolen from him through fraud. Um, I don't think that really matters that, um, you know, it's unfortunate that there are people who don't uh, think that the system is legitimate. But I think the more important issue um, is making sure that everybody has the chance to vote if they want to. Um, and the only way that that's possible, because I can tell you right now, I have a, a lot of friends, whether it's coworkers or um, friends from school, um, even family members who don't have their own vehicle, they rely on somebody else's vehicle or they get rides to work. Um, and I know that those people probably aren't going to feel comfortable asking a friend to give them a ride to go vote. Um, and 
So, you know, the mail-in voting voting option gives people like that a chance to be able to vote without having to worry about having a vehicle and transportation to get there. Um, again, we've kind of exhausted the issue of voter ID, but um, we've talked in other episodes about how um, the requirement of a voter ID, um, actually, it's been proven that um, the fraud rates with the uh, in elections that have not required voter ID have been minuscule, um, that the voter ID doesn't actually make the election very much more secure, at least not secure enough to warrant it being necessary and then disenfranchise people who can't afford an updated ID. So um, I think the best solution is um, making voting as accessible as possible. And that means offering a mail-in voting option um, and not forcing people to come to the polls. And then, of course, for people who do want to actually vote in person, having early voting and then being able to count, allowing states to count those votes early. Um, because as uh, you asked about um, kind of giving the people more confidence in the legitimacy of the election, I think having the results earlier and sooner um, kind of makes people feel more secure in the results. And I think that would be accomplished by allowing states to start counting the early votes early. Noah. Yeah, going off what Olivia was saying, I mean, like, I 100% agree that we need to make elections more accessible to everybody. I think one of the best things that actually came out of this was voting early. But I mean, mainly voting, um, besides mail-in voting, voting early in person. That's what I personally did. I found it to be super duper easy. I mean, like, it was less stressful. I feel like it actually gives uh, people the opportunity to get out and vote, except for this one day system that we have in place. So I feel like potentially this pandemic, although it's been terrible, has potentially led us to potentially making elections more accessible to people. I mean, like if states start now allowing for everybody to vote early in person, no matter who you are, that's going to potentially increase turnout. I mean, like we saw one of the highest increases in turnout ever in an election for like since the 60s or 70s it was but i mean like we need to start allowing more people to vote because then when we have more people voting we have more of a democracy instead of it just being the select few that always show up to vote scholar making voting as accessible as possible needs to be our focus because there are individuals in the in our country that can't leave their beds to go vote how how do you think those individuals with pre-existing conditions and I feel that with the ongoing pandemic and how detrimental COVID is to the internal systems of anybody's body, um, there's going to be a lot more pre-existing conditions. There's going to be a lot more people on permanent oxygen in the future. Um, there's just going to be people who physically can't go in person. And absentee balloting isn't much different than mail-in voting. So how can how can the Republican Party justify absentee ba balloting and go all the lengths about how like, oh, our overseas uh, troops deserve the right to vote so they can mail in their vote. What's the difference between them mailing their ballots from a different country than people mailing them from their houses within the country? It, I feel like there's just so many inconsistencies with the argument about why mail-in balloting is so bad. There's just so many holes in it. It doesn't make sense because they're are all these hidden costs to voting that we we don't necessarily think of. Like Olivia mentioned, I am also one of the people that rely on people for rides. I grew up in downtown Cincinnati and voting in downtown Cincinnati is very different than voting in Kentucky. I was in and out with early voting, even though there was a line very quick. And being in downtown Cincinnati and going to my voting location, I would be standing there with my dad and family members upwards of 30 to 45 minutes. And I feel like there's just so many different factors that disenfranchise voters that 
we, we just need to work on not disenfranchising voters, making it as accessible as possible. Whether or not that is something that the Republican Party is vehemently against, it's what we need. Hey. Um, I think Olivia had mentioned it a little bit um, earlier in one of her comments, just allowing votes to be counted early. I think that mail-in voting is just going to be part of our electoral system. I don't think that it's going to go away anytime soon, especially the pandemic. I think Alan mentioned a couple episodes again, like the possibility for future pandemics. We really don't know. I think also, too, a lot of people like how easy it is. Like it was, you can just put, like fill out your ballot, put it in the mail. You can track your ballot if you want to, to make sure it's been received. And so I think allowing states to count those ballots early is going to help with a lot of confidence. Cause I think a big thing that provided a lot of doubt for people's minds is that we didn't have the outcome on election day. And again, that had happened in before, but I think especially with all the doubt surrounding this election and all the tension between Trump and Biden, that that just kind of fueled a lot of that uncertainty in this time, especially just allowing people, again, if they can have that kind of more solidification on election day or just one or two days after election day, rather than kind of like the longer time we saw this. Olivia. I think one of the ways to um, to kind of get the public to accept the results of, of an election and to um, kind of convince the public to have faith in the election system and that uh, elections are legitimate is to not um, you know, we have this situation with Trump claiming that the election was fraudulent and that he actually won and it was stolen. Um, but we're seeing that in all of these states that are um, holding investigations and holding recounts, um, we're not seeing any differences. We're not seeing in any of these states that there was some, um, you know, crazy amount of fraud that would have changed the election results or that there was a miscounting of ballots. Um, we're just seeing absolutely no evidence of any of Trump's um, accusations um, being true. So I think, you know, of course, we can't prevent that a, a candidate in the future is going to say, well, because there was mail-in balloting or mail-in voting, um, this election wasn't legitimate and I don't accept the results. But um, it's up to other government officials and um, the checks and balances system that we have to not, you know, allow a candidate like we, we just saw, um, I think it was the head of the RNC yesterday made a statement that like this election is not decided yet. And it's like when we have other officials around Trump kind of um, going along with what he's saying, it's like it's not only Trump making these accusations, but it's other people supporting that. And that um, kind of just encourages Trump's base and stay in not accepting the results as legitimate. So I think going forward, um, we need to make sure that when the results are, you know, when the results come in and there's zero evidence of fraud, um, officials need to convey that message to the public instead of kind of going along with, with a candidate who's just refusing to accept that they lost. Right. I thought we would end sort of this series with a really, really big picture kind of thing. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of calls for fundamental changes, not just to the electoral system, but to the political system in the United States. And typically, most of those come from the left. But there have been arguments for, for instance, ending the Electoral College. And I know that's, for instance, uh, near and dear to Olivia's heart, uh, uh, a constitutional amendment to you know regulate money in politics in some way, maybe changing how House dis districts are drawn and, gosh, a whole bunch of other things, really. So. Here's the sort of big picture question I wanted to, to wrap everything up with. Uh, do you think we need to make any fundamental sort of constitution altering changes to how the American political system works? And 
if you do think we do, and if you could just sort of magically wave whatever it is you want to magically wave and make those changes, or what would that what would that change be, Doc? I was looking around this morning and found the most interesting map, uh, and it's from 2016. I couldn't find one from 2020, but it still illustrates what I think is a big problem. It shows all the counties in the United States and which ones went red and which ones went blue. And it's in three dimensions, which is really cool. So if you look at this map, I mean, it's like almost 95% of the United States, area-wise, county-wise, is red. But the blue are like Chicago is a huge stack upward. Los Angeles, California is a huge stack upward. It says we've got all these people concentrated in this very small spot. Uh, they obviously all think alike. Uh, you look at all the big population centers uh, have this huge voting population while the rest of the country uh, for the most part is very, very small when it comes to that and uh, in deference to Olivia I mean I like the Electoral College, but I think there should be something done about these population centers and not giving as much weight to them as just because all these people have gravitated to these places and are usually pretty much dependent on the government for their livelihood. So they're going to vote for who's giving them what they need. So I would really like to see something that says the, the way it spread out should get more weight than the way things stack up in a Chicago or a Los Angeles or a New York. Okay. And a, a, a lot. So in a sense, it would be sort of taking the Electoral College and, and make it to an even further degree, in a sense, to dilute the power of, of urban centers. And one point I, I do want to make is that while there may be more uh, government social services in highly populated areas, other others on the left would point out that Joe Biden, one areas that accounted for, I don't know, something like 70 percent plus of U.S. GDP. So they're also the big production areas of the country as well. Uh, Olivia. You already knew that I was going to say I want the Electoral College dismantled, but I'm not going to like I'm not going to be super repetitive because I've talked about it like three times. But um, I just it, people vote, not land. Um, and I it doesn't you know, in terms of what what um, Doc was saying, it doesn't matter. Um, if there's a super high concentration of people who, um, you know, maybe or maybe not are more li are living in poverty or are more likely to um, to vote democratically, like Doc said, it, it doesn't matter if they're super concentrated in an area because there's still 
there are still a, a lot of people who um, whose vote should matter. So it, it doesn't matter if um, even if, you know, 80 percent of votes were coming from one state and then the other 20 percent, which obviously is not true. I'm exaggerating. But like it doesn't matter where the concentration is, because every single person who's voting within that concentration is still being um, affected the same way by federal policy. Okay, so I'm going to get off that horse because I also wanted to um, talk about how another constitutional amendment that I would like to see is number one, term limits, um, especially in the Senate because they have six-year terms. Um, and then you see somebody like, because we know that the com- incumbents um, tend to have the advantage um, in running for a second term or a third term or in Mitch McConnell's case, I think he's on like his seventh term. Um, and I think it's really important to have younger people who represent my generation and the generation just above mine and the generation just below mine. Um, And it's hard for those people to get a seat, especially in like the Senate when um, elections are every six years and somebody like Mitch McConnell has a good chance of of beating out another candidate in Kentucky because he's the incumbent and because people are familiar with him because he's been there for so long. Um, But we have these candidates who are in their late 70s and 80s. And we have fewer people who are younger and who kind of represent people like me. And I think that's a problem. Um, And then just kind of going along with that a little bit, I think we should see, um, I think Skylar mentioned earlier, um, some of the problems with the fact that uh, House of Representative members only have two-year terms. Um, And we actually discussed in a previous class that like 70% of their time is spent as soon as they're in office um, from day one campaigning for their next term because they only have two years um, until they have to run again. Um, So I think that, you know, since the Senate has six year terms, um, why doesn't the House of Representatives have a little bit longer term so that they can actually focus on policy a little bit and getting policy done um, versus just worrying about how, oh, my gosh, I'm up for election again in two years. I need to start campaigning now. Now, are any of you concerned about the amount of money that goes into politics? I mean, certainly we've seen we've seen tons of money poured into political races. And there are a lot of folks who are concerned that because money is seen to, in a sense, equal speech, that means that those with the most money have the the biggest megaphones or can speak the loudest. But on the other hand, other folks would point to someone like, say, a Michael Bloomberg, who spent well in excess of God, I don't even know. It was in a whole lot of money of his personal fortune and uh, didn't seem to get the kind of results. So is the, the Bloomberg example or the example of, say, a Jamie Harrison in North Carolina, a sign that we shouldn't care so much about money in politics? Or is it a, a real concern that needs to be addressed by some sort of a change or amendment or something that might overturn Citizens United or something like that? What do you think? Alan? So it is a big concern in politics just because Look, I understand the uh, Bloomberg example where he spent all this money and it didn't get him anywhere, but um, that's excluding all the candidates who don't have money and don't get anywhere. There's all these candidates who can't run for office because they don't have the money available to them. And at the end of the day, the money kind of becomes like um, a gatekeeper to even being considered for running for office. So I do think money's a problem. The reason I wouldn't propose a constitutional amendment, though, is because we see so many times over when the government passes laws to rein in campaign finance, to like rein and reform it, they find little loopholes. Like um, they passed something in the 70s about the parties. They found a loophole. Um, we passed McCain-Feingold. They found a loophole. Citizens United was just another example of them finding loopholes. These people keep finding loopholes. So I, I worry that if we pass a constitutional amendment, 
they'll just find a loophole and it'll be useless. I don't think a constitutional amendment is necessarily the answer. Faith. Yeah, I completely, completely agree with everything Alan just said. I think especially looking at like a Bloomberg example, typically examples like that are outliers. And especially to even be able to consider to be re- uh, run for office is you have to have money. That being a main requirement is being having connections and having money. So I think especially the idea that Alan said with the loopholes is going to be a big problem if there ever would be an, an amendment passed. But I do think that, that how much money is involved in politics and campaigning is a big problem. Olivia. Yeah, so um, I think I remember Kamala Harris said that the reason that she had dropped out from her presidential bid initially was because she didn't have the funds to keep going. Um, And obviously, that's a major issue that um, even, you know, there are limits on direct spending, but, um, you know, an an outside uh, organization can make spend as much as they want on ads, um, basically, you know, either bashing a candidate or promoting a candidate, you know, and call it say it's not direct campaign spending as long as they don't directly say like vote for this candidate over the other candidate there are just so many loopholes like alan said so i don't know how um how effective an actual constitutional amendment or change would be but um i did want to just point out that it's not only you know whether or not a candidate can be viable based on the amount of money they have um at their disposal to spend on their campaign but there's also the problem of um obligation and um when there are major you know whether it's super PACs or whether it's just you know a, a donor that has a lot of money into a campaign um even if it's just an individual person um whether or not it's a uh, quid pro quo situation, even if it's not a, a quid pro quo, um, these candidates, we can't expect them to not feel once they're in office that they um, owe it to their donors or that maybe there are even stipulations around them receiving the funding that they did um, to kind of support policies that um, that these donors are in favor of and not support or pass policy that um, the people that they got a lot of their money from are opposed to. So um, it even kind of, you know, the, the fact that there um, seems to be little limitation on campaign spending kind of um, kind of hurts the I don't know what the word is, the uh, legitimacy of, you know, whether we know a candidate is representing policies that they believe in or whether it's because they got a lot of money from um, somebody who has kind of said, I'm giving you this money, but I want this in return. Noah. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with basically everybody on this. I mean, like, I would really like to see just like some change, but I don't know what the best way is to do it. I mean, like, I remember like one of your classes, we learned about potentially um, public funded ones, where it's like every single person in the United States gets like a certain amount of money. It's like, let's say everybody gets $50, which obviously isn't enough to run a campaign, but it's like everybody gets $50 and then you get to donate it or spread it out to whatever camp candidate you like i feel like that's one of the best options that we actually have because it's actually the people that are giving people this money and it's not like it's these major companies that are having these super PACs and all this other stuff that can just basically spend as much as they want to um one of my favorite representatives is katie porter from california and um, yesterday on twitter she was talking about all the dark money in um and and the environmental policy issues like a lot of times like a lot of people are voting not because they are against this because that's what they're basically having to do because of the money they're getting so i feel like there needs to be some change but the best way to do it is still like it eludes me to this day because it's like no as alan said before there's always going to be some loophole that people can find okay so for a final question uh given what you what you have seen not in just this election but you know over the time you've been following politics and uh, would you say that you are 
optimistic about the future of the American political system? Or do you look ahead with a sense of, I don't know, fear, dread, loathing, <laughs> some combination thereof? Uh, how optimistic are you? Doc? Uh, I'll go back to something I said a long time ago, and it, it dealt more with science than politics, but it it's applicable. Uh, Max Plack, I think it was, said that progress is made one funeral at a time. So uh, you younger folks are going to be around. A lot of these folks are going to die. I mean, they're old and uh, nobody lives forever. And there will be progress one way or another. Uh, I fear that you, if, if you go with this progressive mindset and this kind of left-leaning uh, ideas, that you're going to be really really sad. I mean, I, I, I grew up and, you know, you know, better lucky than smart. Uh, economics were great. I had a great job. Uh, you know, the politics ebbed and flowed around me. Uh, I don't think I ever got into one like, uh, this last one, which was, you know, kind of, uh, for me, personal, because I think uh, Biden is just going to be led around by his nose. Um, as a matter of fact, he's already half out of commission. But yeah, I think I think things will change, and I think you better be careful about you what you wish for, because you might get it. Okay, and I guess the Biden remark, he just, we, we recently heard that he uh, had a slight fracture to his football playing with his dog, and I, I can certainly empathize with that. My dogs play pretty hard as well. So, so yeah, I guess uh, the president-elect's going to be in a walking boot for a while, it seems like. Alan? So I'm usually pretty pessimistic, and I remain pessimistic because polarization increases. But I also look to history a lot, and we've been in, like, essentially this position before, and we have, like, I gotten through it. We're still a country. I mean, I look to the Gilded Age when political corruption was running rampant. I look to um, the Whig Democratic Age when there was stark, like, regional polarization very similar to what we have now. And we've gotten through these periods before. So we, we could very well get through it again, but we do have to work very hard, too. Okay, well, that's, that's nice to hear some optimism from you, Alan. I appreciate that. Uh, Olivia. So I, I actually am feeling a little bit optimistic. Um, I know I said in the past that um, like the Trump administration and kind of the cult following around him, um, not only by like the average, you know, um, voter, but also by people um, in government and kind of almost the entire Republican Party of officials has been super loyal to Trump and kind of refused to hold him accountable. And then those who try to hold him accountable get fired. Um, and that is really, really concerning to me. And I do fear that going forward, um, you know, whether Trump runs again, or even if he doesn't run again, if we have another um, kind of extreme candidate like Trump, that 
um, there will be no accountability because the Republican Party has kind of joined together as like one entity that um, does not hold each other accountable. That's um, problematic. But I also think that that um, corruption that we have seen under the Trump administration and all of the problems with Trump and his administration has kind of um, motivated people on the left um, to get out and vote if maybe they haven't before. And um, it's kind of um, mobilized people to demand change. And um, I think we're living in an era, like I've mentioned before, with Black Lives Matter movement, um, but not even just with Black Lives Matter, with um, progressives coming out and being very vocal like AOC um, and with Bernie garnering the support that he did, um, that he did have before he dropped out. Um, I do kind of have optimism that maybe Trump has honestly contributed to people um, moving further left. I actually know some Republicans who have kind of moved to the left because they've been just so appalled with Trump and the way that people have been um, so loyal to Trump. And um, I, 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 you know, I would like to see the country move in a progressive, uh, pro- progressive direction because that's that's where my ideology is. And I kind of have some faith that that might happen. Um, as Doc said, the older generations are not going to be the ones voting and making decisions. Um, uh, forever. My generation and the generations below me will be, you know, coming of age to either run or at least vote. Um, and I think that Trump has actually turned some people um, to the left who maybe weren't already there. And then we're having younger generations who are going to who are going to kind of maintain that. So I think we're going to move in a, a progressive direction um, going forward. OK. And, and, and that might be in our, in our last episode, the most positive thing, uh, Olivia, you said about about the president. Uh, and, and so let's wrap things up. Noah, let's give you the the, the last word here. Um, so as our resident positive poly that I am, I'm also <laughs> kind of optimistic as well. Um, so I feel like this, like, I don't want to say it was like a back step with Trump's presidency, but I feel like it kind of was like a step back. And I feel like potentially now, I think we're seeing a u- potential, u- well, well, with some people, we're seeing it becoming more united. So I feel like after this presidency, like as Alan was saying, always after we have a high time of polarization, we always come back. So I'm hoping that maybe this was our highest peak in polarization and that we're actually going on the downfall. And so that's me being hopeful and positive and optimistic that as much as I can be. But I also still have my oddest common fears. I mean, like, maybe we'll just get more gridlock. Maybe everything will just change and then we will potentially even get worse. I mean, is there that potential? There always is. But I feel like right now with this election, I feel like we're taking the steps in the right direction to start working together again that we can all start doing again. And we can start talking about politics and stuff like this again with people who are not the same party as us. I feel like this podcast has shown it because it's like, just because I don't agree with Doc on everything or Alan or Faith or Olivia or even Skylar, just because we don't all agree on something does not mean we can't be civil. And so I think we are taking the steps in the right direction that actually needs to happen. Okay. And Noah, I was counting on you to, to lead us out there on a, on a very positive, uplifting note, and you totally delivered the goods. So thank you very much. And thanks again also to everyone who made this series possible and to all of our listeners. And if you would like to support the podcast and get that supporters-only full-length bonus episode every week, along with ad-free versions of all our shows and other stuff at other levels, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you would like access to all of our content, but you're not able to support the show financially right now, just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will be happy to set you up with access to all of our content.
The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. Although this series is over, we will be back with our next Politics Guys episode on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.